This episode is brought to you by North Texas Honda Dealers. North Texas Honda Dealers, they're here to help. He has time, launches it to the end zone. Touchdown, Terrence Williams. Goes to the right side for Crabtree. It's caught. He put, oh, he's going hard. Welcome to the Republic of Football. I'm your host, Ishmael Johnson, here in studio with producer Mal Pal. Mallory, hello. Hi. You haven't called me that in a while. I haven't? No. Oh, oh I'm sorry. That's my official title, so yeah, and you, you have to, to start, start calling me that. back to that, yeah. Thank uh, you. Just me and you in the studio today, because on the phone, on the road, talking with Mike Craven. Mike, you're back on the road. What is this, fall already? <laughs> it does feel more normal to be back on the road than actually, like, at home. Yeah. I... I should start counting the days that I'm on the road just to see how close to even it is. But yeah, out in Lubbock, it's uh, very dry, very windy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, as you would imagine, it would be. Is it super hot there right now? It's pretty hot. Yeah. It's pretty hot. Today, it's hot here today, too. It's, like it's pretty hot. Yeah, I think it's hot across the state. I saw uh, Austin, the high was going to be like 96 or something. Oh, so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm not ready. The office nope, is really hot. Ne- never too. ready for summer. It's and it's uh, nice to be greeted by it out here in Lubbock. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, episode 195, uh, according to Mallory, if that's wrong, you can blame her for that. It's not. I, I triple checked <laughs> from last time. Okay. Uh, well, we'll see. We'll see what the episode title <laughs> says. Um, anyway, we got, we're going to continue our interview series today. We have Rice head coach, Mike Bloomgren, uh, somebody who I remember when he was hired a couple years ago. You looked at his resume, you looked at his personality, and you're like, that that's a rice head coach. <laughs> he like yeah, did like a there was like a video of him with like Google Glass at the time, like wearing glasses, uh, testing that out. And it's like, oh yeah, that's a guy who should be coaching at Rice. So uh Mike Craven got a chance to sit down with him. And we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. And of course, we'll talk a little bit about the owls afterward. Uh but first we got quite a bit of headlines. Uh last week we didn't really have much to talk about, but this week kind of got a lot. Let's get the uh the the quote unquote negative out the way uh, we only got one of those luckily but unfortunately it's a pretty big one houston running back alton mccaskill tore his acl at spring uh spring camp and uh yeah basically puts his 2022 on on ice um you know obviously to acl tears are very serious um obviously there's no timetable for his return because of course it's, you have to you have to more or less assume that he's more or less done for this year um unfortunately even though it is an injury that happened even though it's an injury that's gotten better in terms of recovery process asking him to be ready by any time this fall is just kind of a bridge too far right now um craven obviously houston uh, mccaskill was like one of the i guess the the triplets you would you would call them for houston this year with nathaniel dell and clayton toon uh now he goes down after such an incredible breakout 2021 you know what what does this do for houston um and for their prospects in 2022. Yeah, it's a definitely a tough break. You know, I don't know how far it sets them back. I don't know if this is a big enough loss to make like Cincinnati the favorite or to eliminate some of their, you know, hopes and dreams of 2022. I, I do think they have some quality depth there. And we'll mm-hmm. talk a little bit more about another guy they added in a second. But, uh, you know, that's 18 total touchdowns you're losing from last year. You know, he rushed for nearly a thousand yards. 
you were you'd imagine those numbers would have gone up this year with a little bit more usage he was a good receiver out of the backfield so uh, a big tough loss because you know i think when we you know when you think of a dana holgerson team you immediately think of quarterbacks and, and the passing game but he likes the balance you know like mm-hmm. that really helps clayton tune i think one of the reasons clayton tune took such a big step forward last year was because he had a guy like Alden McCaskill uh, to really lean on in a running game to, to count on. So a, b- a big break for Houston. You just hate to see injuries. And it's one of those things when you tear an ACL, you just don't know how bad the injury is until you have the surgery. Like until the doctor sure. cuts you open and start, starts operating, you just have no idea how bad the tear is. Best case scenario, you know, maybe he can be back for that final couple weeks of the season, maybe a, a conference championship game, bowl, bowl game, something like that, depending on how well Houston's uh, season is going. Yeah. Uh, some better Houston news um, along that line of running back. They get a guy coming home. Uh, former Katie running back uh, transfers, uh, Brandon Campbell transfers from USC to Houston. Didn't play much. I believe only had, what, 53 yards last year um, as a freshman for USC. But coming back home, highly tattered recruit coming out of Katie. Of course, Katie being a running back factory, more or less, um, in the state of Texas. I, do you expect him to play a factor, especially now, um, this season for Houston? I do, because, you know, the, the other guy they have there is Dejon Henry, and a really good running back, talented guy. I don't think he's somebody who can carry a load in the same way that a McCastle can. Mm-hmm. Brandon Campbell's a bigger guy. He's a dude who could – you know, potentially carry the ball 10, 15, 20 times a game if he's, you know, that good, shows up to camp and impresses that much. So I do think it's a huge deal. I mean, it's it's not, you know, McCaskill didn't tear his ACL and then they went out and got Campbell, right? This was mm-hmm. already in the works, but it, it couldn't have worked out any better. If you're going to lose a, a running back of that caliber, it's nice to add somebody who's as talented or, or you know, at least is talented and uh, can come in and help right away and take a little bit of, of the load off of Henry. You know, what's crazy, like, think about the Brandon Campbell. Uh, he was at three different schools in high school, one of them Katie Taylor when he was there when he was a sophomore. Hmm. And that offensive line had Andrew Coker, Bryce Foster, uh, Hayden Connor, uh, one of the better rushing attacks in the state at the time. So uh, cool to see him come back home, and maybe a, a second chance will help him uh, kind of get some more carries than he was getting in USC. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, <clears throat> one more thing on Houston, another uh, something else in positive news. Uh, Dana Holgerson extended through 2027. Um, I, I don't think, especially after last year, I don't think his job was ever in jeopardy, but that's kind of the natural way you reward a coach for exceeding, meeting or exceeding expectations. Um, and it kind of shows to me Houston's, Houston's further investment in football. Obviously, when you bring in somebody like a Dana Holgerson from West Virginia, you show a, a big, uh, a big uh, investment in the sport and, and getting to a new level. But also, like now being willing to extend him because, you know, you're moving to the Big Twelve, so obviously there's some extra money there. But also, like you know, it, it, Holgerson likes Houston, so I'm not trying to like cause any controversy here. But like naturally, there's going to be that conversation of like, oh, is he going to look elsewhere? Is this, you know, it, does he feel tapped out of Houston? Well, answer is kind of no, and and then along with that usually comes some extensions. So um, I like that they're, they've locked him up and, you know, if they win another conference, like he might be getting another one year extension with some money bonuses after that um, heading into the big 12. So um, yeah, some, unfortunately one piece of bad news for Houston, but a couple other things to kind of give them some optimism for the rest of spring. All righty. We got a couple more headlines. Uh, another extension to talk about Baylor athletic director, Mac Rhodes receives a 10 year extension. Um, 
I mean, I see no reason why he didn't earn this. Uh, he's had two dynamite football hires. Uh, Nikki Collin hired for women's basketball. Like he's that program is probably one of the more consistent ones in the country. I'd say over the last four or five years, four years, I'd say. Um, and yeah, I mean, geez, at this point, Mac Rhodes is probably one of the best athletic directors right now in definitely in Texas, but probably reaching the country right now too. Do you know how many Big Twelve titles have been won in his tenure? At Baylor, just overall. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I'm gonna go with four. I saw Over. like, uh, yeah. Oh man, I saw 24. 24. out of all sports. Oh, all sports. Jesus, all sports. Yeah, 24. Yeah. No, yes, yes. Over all sports. Jesus. 24 20. in his tenure. Isn't that nuts? That is insane. Yeah. I think that calls for a good, good <laughs> extension. Make sure he doesn't leave. Let's exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think he was a the guy. They they were a little worried that he may, you know, go find a, a you know, maybe mm-hmm. one of the top five jobs in the Nate. Right? He sure. was a he was a very sought after man. This locks him up. I know he really likes being at Baylor. Uh, what he's done is impressive. What what's happening at Baylor is impressive. And I've joked, if he wants to get out of the athletic director game, he could probably make more money just starting a coaching search for, firm. Yeah, he, seriously. He, like the man to call if you're trying to hire a coach in one of the the money making sports because he's got them all down pat so far. Yep, hundred percent, hundred percent. Let's see. Last piece of news: uh, A&M's recruiting class got better uh, somehow. Uh, <laughs> didn't know what? it could do that. <laughs> <laughs> didn't I? Really didn't know it could do that. Uh, five star. Let me see. I had it right here. Uh, Lebius Overton mm-hmm. uh, committed, reclassified from 2023 to 2022. Uh, five-star defensive lineman. Guess what? They got another defensive lineman, five-star. Um, and he committed to AM this past week. Uh, yeah, that's nuts. They just got better. I don't know how. They already had the best class in the country, and they just got an even better one. So, Craven, um, scariest class ever, or how are we rating this? Yeah, I mean, eight out of the 30 players they signed are five-stars. That's, ups- that's, that's, that's You scary. only get that with, like, Alabama. Like that's like that's literally the only time you ever hear about that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just just an unbelievable job by Jimbo Fisher and his staff. And you know, I, I think six out of the top seven defensive linemen in the twenty twenty two cycle are going to to A and M, and that's oh on the gosh. heels of a super good offensive line class last year. Um, and so in the SEC, I think we've all learned by now, yeah, ha- having really good quarterback play helps a lot. Like the way LSU won, but you really re- went in the trenches the way you know that Georgia and Alabama have won in the SEC, and A&M's following that model. They're going to field one of the best offensive lines, one of the best defensive lines uh, in the country, and that's that's only growing, right? Like, mm-hmm. once you know, once you start getting this train rolling, it only gets more and more steam. You know, it doesn't run out of room. And so I think what we've seen with A&M is that this stuff is contagious. Yeah. Really great kids like playing with really great kids, and if you can start getting it rolling that way, you know, A&M's becoming a destination for these top recruits, and it's not a fluke. This is the thing that's going to continue. Yeah, and I know that there was some uh, – there was a tweet that was going around about, like, when when, when Evan Stewart committed and Chris mm-hmm. Marshall, the receivers, and they were like, oh, Jimbo hasn't put out a receiver since, I don't know, Kelvin – probably Kelvin Benjamin, if we're being honest. Um, but it was like, oh, why are they committing to whatever? And so I was like, one, yeah, sure, I get it. You're mad that Evan Stewart committed to A&M. Sure, whatever. You're a Texas fan probably. Um, but <laughs> – the trenches, I don't want to hear anybody mm-hmm. <laughs> talking about, oh, these guys are going to leave in a year or two, whatever. If there's one program in the state that you can trust, trust with the trenches, it's Texas a Yep. It's the one that put Von Miller, Miles Garrett, it's putting DeMarvin Leal, Michael Clemens, right? They're, they're pumping out 
before and after Jimbo Fisher, before, after, during Jimbo Fisher, they are pumping out defensive linemen. It's the trenches. It's offensively. Jake Matthews, right? Luke Jokel. These A&M's known, ha, know, has known how to put guys in the league from the line. And that's one thing that you cannot. Obviously, like there's a reason why certain teams have success in recruiting and things like that. You can sell them on whatever, right? A&M, it does not surprise me that they've hit that they've hit hard in the defense in the defense in the trenches, and they've also uh, uh, struck gold there, right? In terms of like the five stars, because not only yes, you can offer whatever they can offer as far as like nil, but then again, there's like Texas can do that too, all these other places. In addition to that, AM can say, yeah, by the way, look, number one player in the draft, Miles Garrett, right? Yeah, that can be you. And so, in addition to all the, the nil stuff that rumored could be around, probably it's. The, it's it's college football of course everybody's offering stuff now but you gotta been AM's not they're not gonna sell anybody on just money right AM's not at that level yet mm-hmm. to where you can just say oh we're just gonna pay whatever for these deals and nil and all that they're not at that level yet anybody could anybody with a big booster can do that phil knight for oregon if he wanted just to go try and do this he could have tried and forked out however much he wanted to and brought in eight five stars to oregon Right. But no, you have to also back something up. And that's why Alabama consistently continues to do that, because they can also say, hey, by the way, not only can you maybe you can, you know, our booster is going to take care of you with NIL deals and sponsorships and all that. You can also go to the league. (laughs) You can also just get this done this way. And so, yeah, I. I don't know. We'll, we'll see a lot of controversy about like, oh, AM bought themselves a recruiting class. And it's like, everybody's buying a recruiting mm, class. Exactly. Like, that does not, it really. It's not an argument. It's not an argument. Like, they always have. They always, exactly. they always have. They're just doing it over the table now. Quinn Ewers took a trip to Ohio for a year uh-huh. because he got the money and he's back in Texas now. Like, that's fine, right? But don't try to use that as an excuse mm-hmm. as like, oh, this is why teams are recruiting well now. It's like, no, they've always been doing this. Exactly. AM has something to fall back on, though, by saying, hey, yeah, by the way. We can send you to the league. <laughs> yeah. You want to get really paid? You want to get really paid? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. And it wasn't always just cash, right? And then, sure. uh, but they were doing it with locker rooms and weight rooms mm-hmm. and dorms and apartments and all that, you know? And so, yeah. Um, you know, I think the the shift now is that maybe a lot of that booster money that went into like the new upgrade of the weight room every year to add a waterfall and stuff right, like right. that. Now that just goes directly to the players. Yep, yep. And so uh, that's fine. That's that's a good thing. And so there's always been an arms race like there has. It's not like these five stars were going to UTSA and today they're going to A&M because big bad A&M can like pay them. They've mm-hmm. always gone to A&M, right? They've always gone to Alabama, to Georgia, to the better schools. And uh, like you said, you know. We hear about like UT's giving offensive linemen like fifty thousand dollars, right? Yeah. Well, that's nothing. If you're planning on going to the NFL, like fifty thousand dollars, awesome. When you're eighteen years old, like that's great. That's yeah. better than nothing and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's probably additions on once you start starting and, and stuff like that. But if you have aspirations to go to the to the league or whatever, like mm-hmm. you're talking millions. I was about to say, if you're Bryce Foster, you're like, cool. That's great for when I'm eighteen, nineteen, twenty. But when I'm twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, I should be getting that first round draft check. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm trying to go get money, money. Yeah. You know, like I'm not trying to go get like teacher money and just like get me through, like get me a car and some, you know, right. like I'm trying to get like generational money. Yes. And you do that at places that produce you into an NFL player. Like it's fine to be a four star and a five star and to start off with a better base than everybody else. 
but like guys don't develop like a, a guy like Kenyon Green doesn't just get drafted because he's like Kenyon Green and that was his birthright. Right. right. Had he gone to different schools, there's different paths where like Kenyon Green doesn't grow into the player we thought he was going to grow into. Sure. And so when you see a program continuously putting guys into the league at the position you play in, that's that's like dollar sign. That's that's like your life. That's changing the whole pathway of your future. And you're going to go to that more than like if somebody's offering you 10 grand compared to 30 grand compared to 50 grand compared to 60 grand. These guys are thinking about making 10 million. And so, uh, yeah, it the consistency that A&M has had with multiple coaches uh, putting guys into the trenches and the reputation that the SEC has of just iron sharpening iron into, you know, the cream of the crop will rise and then eventually get seen well enough to get drafted. Is, is really helping A&M. And, and a decade plus into the SEC, I think they're really starting to see the full might of what that conference and what that stage can really do for a program. Yep, 100%. All right, so we got uh, to transition a little bit. Uh, we got one more. I said that was the last one, but we got one more piece of news. Uh, Jake Bailey uh, transferring from Rice to SMU, 700-yard uh, receiver last year for the Owls. Um Kind of a big loss. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a great pickup. I mean, to play both sides, obviously, they're both in state. Great pickup for SMU, um, but also a very huge loss for Rice. And I'd probably argue more of a loss for Rice than a gain for SMU. Mm-hmm. Because oh, you, yeah. you already struggled it's... so much in the passing game, and then you lose your top your guy. Top, top, top <laughs> By the way, for the second consecutive year, because I can't remember, uh, I'm yep. forgetting the name of the, the, the receiver who, because Rice only played four games in 2020, but. Um, it was a receiver who had like 400 or 500 yards in those like four games or whatever. And then of course he graduated because that was it. But for a second consecutive year, you lose, um, you lose that, uh, uh, uh Trammel, um, Austin Trammel, Austin Trammel. Yes. He finished great with that, that 2020 year. So that's back to back years of losing your top target at receiver, which stinks. But, um, yeah, Craven, what are your thoughts on that one? Uh, kind of both sides there for Rice and for SMU. Yeah, for SMU, it adds another addition, right? They lost Reggie Roberson, Danny Gray to the NFL draft process, and so they needed some wide receivers. He'll go in there and, and really help immediately, especially at the slot position. I think he's kind of the guy to replace Danny Gray or the favorite to replace the production lost by Danny Gray in the slot. Uh, but for Rice, I mean, it, it's it's crippling in my yeah. opinion. I mean, it, it's He was far and away their best player on offense. He caught 56 passes last year. Rice as a team caught 205. Jeez. You know, like he, he, he accounted for 714 receiving yards as a team. They had 2,540, mm. you know, so like well over 25% of their, you know, production receiving wise, you know, they didn't have the greatest of running games either. Um, so he was going to be their go-to guy. And it kind of goes back to that conversation we were having last week uh, about Spavadol and how, you know, you, the, the fear of hitting on some of these underrated, you know, gyms and recruiting out of high school is if they blow up freshman, sophomore year, they're gone. Mm-hmm. Um, you kind of play the minor league system for everybody else. And unfortunately that, that happened to rice and it's going to be, uh, you know, somebody else is going to have to step up, you know, probably like a Cedric Patterson, uh, Jordan Meyer or something like that. Uh, Luke McCaffrey is going to be a wide receiver yeah. full time okay. this year. Okay. Uh, Sam Crawford from Tulsa. 
uh, old Rockwall wide receiver transferred in. So, you know, they got some options out there. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a big time loss for Rice. He was far and away their, their best player. And, the you know, a little sneak behind the scenes. I had started working on some stuff in the magazine already. I had him slotted as, you know, the offensive MVP. So I'm going to have to go back and <laughs> change, that. <laughs> change that a little bit. Yep. It's kind of the, I mean, we got May, basically until May 1st, Porny, those rosters are more or less solidified. So that's kind of one of the, um, one of the, 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 obstacles uh i was looking back on austin trammell's 2020 by the way and he had 335 yards in three games because <laughs> he because he missed uh, he missed two and rice played a total of five so yeah he had 16 catches 335 in three games and then of course now they lose jake bailey right after that so that's just like that's just unfortunate um unfortunate for for them uh but let's transition over to uh the interview uh like i mentioned it is with mike bloomgren now in his fourth entering his fourth year correct uh yeah. rice yeah. so craven before we get into the interview i guess what what i wanted to ask you was after you got done talking with him or maybe during the interview did you understand did, basically did he feel like a rice coach to you because like i mentioned when he took the job i was like oh my gosh this guy's very openly and pridefully nerdy in many ways very smart individual uh loves the obviously he loves that stanford brand of, of football and i think that is you know i i appreciate that he realized the the obstacles that rice had to deal with and kind of saw that as kind of like the the them being the group of five stanford right um did you kind of get that idea as well oh yeah for sure i mean he was like born and bred to be a rice coach right you know like if he coached basketball he'd be like a duke guy yeah Um, yeah and so i mean he was like magna cum laude you know at florida state or whatever i don't even know how to say it because i was nowhere close to being anywhere near (laughs) that kind of thing i never had to worry about any of that kind of stuff um so yeah an extremely smart guy who really cut his teeth and and made his reputation at stanford which is you know you know pretty similar program to rice in terms of academics and stuff so been around a lot of smart guys and you know, he kind of made a joke about, you know, he's always the dumbest guy in the room mm-hmm. at, at Rice, right? Mm-hmm. He was always the dumbest guy in the room at Stanford, which, uh, you know, really made me feel bad because, like, what would that make me? So, yeah, I mean, absolutely. It kind of felt like a stereotypical Rice coach. It was, uh, it was a really cool conversation and uh, definitely definitely a smart guy who uh, really loves the game of football. Yep. All righty. So we're, but without further ado, we'll just jump right into it. Here is Mike Craven's conversation with Rice head coach Mike Bloomgren. Okay, we're here with Rice head coach Mike Bloomgren. Coach, how are you doing? Doing great. In the middle of spring ball and just had pro day, so uh, it's kind of a fun time to be uh, be going in college football. So I'm up here in Dallas-Fort Worth area, and last night we went to WrestleMania. I was curious, did you did you grow up with any WWE influence inside your, your life? Not any WWE because I'm older than that. It was the WWF. And, uh, but absolutely, Hacksaw Jim Duggan and all those guys, Coco Beware and coming off the top rope. And, uh, yeah, a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a good time. I had the spectacle of it. I, I enjoyed the people watching as much as the wrestling watching, I, I believe. Yeah, I imagine I would nowadays too. So you grew up in Florida. You graduated from high school out of Tallahassee, and you went and played tight end at, at Culver Stockton College. I'm curious what the scouting report on tight end Mike Bloomgren would be from Coach Bloomgren? Oof. Uh, man, I don't know if, if I want to do brutal truth on that one because I, I certainly don't think I'd recruit the uh, the student athlete that I was. Uh, I think probably some limitations there. Um, but you know what? A guy that loved the game, a guy that was passionate about every opportunity he got to play it, 
and a motor that wouldn't stop. Like I was, when I played basketball, you know, I lettered in seven sports and, and basketball. I, I think I played basketball like football, and I was going to use my fouls, and I was going to use them in a very uh, very aggressive way. And, and that's who I was. That's just, again, I felt like I always had to outwork everybody uh, as a player. And certainly, uh, but again, don't think I'd recruit me in this day and age. You lettered in seven sports. Which one was kind of your favorite to play? Football, without question. And, uh, you know, but, but again, I grew up playing everything. Baseball is my first true love. Fell in love with the game at four years old. And, uh, you know, it, it's amazing. I, I did not play tackle football until I was in ninth grade. I played flag, and it just wasn't a thing in Tallahassee, Florida. You didn't have middle school football, and so I didn't get those opportunities that some people do. Uh, now they have it, but they didn't when I was playing. And so, uh, again, falling in love with, with high school football as a ninth grader and never looking back, that, that really kind of took over. Uh, my love. You know, sports specificity is something that gets talked about a, a lot these days. I imagine you're you're in favor of playing as many sports as you, as you possibly can when you're a kid. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up. It's it's a constant battle in our household. I've got a, a son that's a freshman in high school and and loves football, and I'm just trying to tell him he's got to play everything that he can right now. You know, there's going to be a time where he's got to narrow things down. That's for sure. But I think the more opportunities young players can compete. And, and learn what it takes to win, whatever sport that is, I think the better off they're going to be. And after your playing days, you, you got back to Florida State. Uh, you coached there a little bit while you were still in school. I'm curious, you know, Bobby Bowden was basically your first real boss. What was that like? So, actually, when I got done playing, I went back and I coached for my, my high school football coach, Mike Hickman, at Florida High. So, I started okay. at high school ranks. And, uh, actually, the first year he threw me, uh, coaching the middle school team at my old high school in the first year it existed. And so I, I got a chance to do that and then, you know, go scout games for the varsity, take great notes, and really kind of learn what this thing was all about at that level. And uh, But my high school coach had GA'd for Coach Bowden at West Virginia way back when. And so he said, hey, do you, you think you want to do this? Let's let's see if you can go across the street and, and, and learn from these guys. And, and literally my high school was 300 yards from Florida State's practice fields. So I went to Florida High, which is, at the time was on Florida State's campus. And so I had always gone over there. I mean, we would go, be going through two-a-days, and we'd have a break in our day, and we'd go watch those guys, anybody from Charlie Ward to Ward Dunn, and, and watch those guys practice. So it, it was such an honor for me to get a chance to go across the street and, and talk to Coach Bowden and talk to Coach Mickey Andrews and Chuck Amato uh, and get to hear those guys and, and to get an opportunity to sit in those meeting rooms and, and go – you know, hey, go get coffee, go get Cokes, hey, whatever. Like, anything you need me to do, man, I just want this opportunity to learn from this unbelievable staff. So starting starting off coaching in college with Coach Bowden was, was unbelievable. I've been so blessed by all of my influences and all the people I've got to work for in this great game and, and learn under. But, yeah, certainly that was really special. Then you were a GA, GA at Bama. And then it, what strikes me was that you went to some small schools after that, including Delta State. Kind of what are the, the challenges and what are the advantages of getting to work in a place where you're, you know, the offensive coordinator, the offensive line coach, special teams, I imagine you're cutting grass and doing a bunch of stuff behind the scenes. Kind of what do you think that did for you as kind of a young coach in terms of just your learning curve? I'm so thankful for my path. I'm so thankful. Look, some people can do it. Some people can be great players and jump right into being a graduate assistant at an FBS level, a Power 5 level and rock their career like that. But I wouldn't trade my path for anything because, as you mentioned, 
you know, I'm at Catawba College. I'm the offensive line coach. I'm the run game coordinator. I'm probably, I think I'm 25 years old. And, uh, you know, she, uh, I'm, I am lining fields. Anytime they need to be lined, helping out there. I'm the equipment manager. I'm ordering everything. I've got student equipment managers that come and help out. So you just talk about, like, getting a global view and really starting to understand everything uh, that goes on day to day. I, I just wouldn't trade those things for anything in the world, and certainly they're experiences that I even rely on today. Then on the other end of that spectrum, you go and you get to the NFL for a little while. What was intriguing about uh, that opening with the Jets, and kind of what did you learn for your time from your time at, at that level? Yeah, so we mentioned Catawba College. I'm there three years. Then I get my first offensive coordinator job at Delta State. I would go to Delta State, and we have some really good success. And, and my second year there, we make it to the Final Four. We lose to Grand Valley State in the semifinals. And come back, and a week later we report back after Christmas, and our head coach retires. And, um, you know, Delta State is, is a really good football place, and it was a lot of fun at that time. But, you know, it's in Cleveland, Mississippi, and, and they asked if I was interviewing for or interested in interviewing for the head coaching job at that time. And, you know, I, I wasn't. And, uh, well, I actually, I, maybe I kind of was, but my wife was, was ready to move from Cleveland, Mississippi, and she informed me that I was not interested in that job. And so um, the thing that's kind of a gap in my resume that nobody knows about is I went to Texas A&M with Dennis Franchoni. He's the guy I, I GA'd my last year at Alabama with, and he made a position for me and was bringing me to A&M. And I was there about two weeks, and I get a call at like 6 a.m. in the morning, and it's one of the scouts with the New York Jets, Mike Davis, who I'd become very, very close with. And he's like, hey, I think we got an opening. How old are you? And it's like, you know, that conversation at the bar, like, how old do you want me to be? <laughs> you tell me, man. Like, I was like, look, I'm 29. I turned 30 in, in two weeks. And he said, okay, let me see what happens. And long story short, I, I get a chance to go up there and interview. It's a 12-hour interview from the time I land. I landed late, so I never got a meal. I didn't eat except for breakfast. I, I didn't eat until like 1 a.m. the next day. Uh at the TGI Fridays with one of the guys interviewing me. And so it, it was just a crazy day. Uh, but you get that opportunity to go up there, and it's the pinnacle of our profession, right? It's the best players, and you think it's the best coaches, and you just get an opportunity to do that. And, and they called me probably a week later, right after signing day, and said, hey, you got the job. It's 45000 no benefits. And we had a six-month-old child. And so, you know, it's like, ah. Oh, you know, it's a dream to be able to do this, but we can't do it with no benefits. So I talked to my wife. I told them, I'm sorry, I can't do it. And they called back, and they said, okay, we'll give you 45 in benefits. And I was like, sold. And so <laughs> literally we moved to Long Island, New York, making $45,000, and uh, we couldn't pay our rent with my check. Luckily we had sold houses at Catawba and Delta State to have some money in the bank so we could make it work. And my wife was just such a champ through it all. You know, I'd bring her home food from the training table. And we were so poor we couldn't pay attention, but we still had a great time. And then, uh, you know, that, that path at the Jets was, was really interesting. I got promoted every year. They doubled my salary pretty much every year until that last year where I became the assistant offensive coordinator. And, you know, we went to back-to-back -back AFC championship games. So really, really good times to be a part of the New York Jet organization. A lot of fun. Did your wife enjoy the New York area a little bit more than Cleveland, Mississippi? You know, she she's so good because she's a, a military brat, Army brat, and her dad was a colonel in the Army, so she moved pretty much every year. So she's good with most areas. 
and certainly as as we got a little more money and we could go into Manhattan and enjoy some of that, it was it was a great time and it was great that we were there at a young age uh, for the four years. And we took pretty good advantage of it. So, yeah, I guess to answer your question, she did enjoy that. Just to circle back to something you just said, her father was a colonel in the military. How scary was that first meeting? You know, it was. It was almost as scary as when I was in high school and I was dating Chuck Amato's daughter. And, uh, you know, you know, that's one of those things because Coach Amato in Tallahassee at that time, you know, Chuck the Chef, he's huge. And yeah. just going over to his house, man, like uh, there were some intimidating things there, to, to say the least. But, uh, you know, meeting her dad and just the man that he was, I've always tried to learn from him and, and learn leadership from him. So it, it was a really cool conversation. He certainly could have made it worse on me. He made it pretty easy. Uh, so glad that we've gotten to build the relationship we have over time as well. And one more question about that. I had I had a mole inside your staff tell me that that your wife is an incredible dessert maker. Um, so I was curious, what's the the most requested thing inside the the Bloomgren household when when holidays come around? Yeah, so there's victory desserts. So every Sunday after we win a game, you know she's gonna she's gonna bring up two pans of, of whatever. And I'd say that the most requested is probably banana pudding. And I don't mm. think she. Uh, she goes really easy on the cream or the sugar when she's making that, but uh, it's it's incredible, and all those things seem to get uh, consumed pretty easily when when she brings them up on those Sundays. Then you go uh, from the Jets, you you go to Stanford. Uh, you're working there for David Shaw. Um, who's the best player that you coached at Stanford? I, I two come to my head pretty quickly. Yeah, that's that's a real tough question because I I think there's a you can't even name them without leaving somebody out, but. You know, we had three go to the Heisman and finish second in Andrew Luck, Christian McCaffrey, and Bryce Love. So those three were pretty special. I think coaching David DeCastro, who ended up being one of the best guards in the NFL for a number of years, was was awesome in my first year. Uh, Coach David Yankee, who won every award you could on the West Coast, and and then had Joshua Garnett, who was another first-round draft pick, and he won the Outland Trophy, which for an offensive lineman to win that is always impressive and you know, Josh won every award. We had such a great run there with, with great offensive linemen. Andrews Pete getting drafted in the first round and after really only two and a half years at Stanford. Like, those are just – we just had some really, really good players. Uh, and I'm so thankful uh, that we had not just those guys on the field, but the impact they had on my family. And, you know, I, we've got tons of pictures of Christian on the fence talking to my kids after practice. And, and just I think he's a big part of, of them falling in love with football the way that they did. Yeah, you're an offensive line, line coach. I'm curious, what's the most, you know, every time I've gone to a bowl game, there's always like an eating competition. Do you, do you have like a, is there an offensive lineman who you've seen just eat an ungodly amount of food before? Yeah, and I don't remember the uh, the metrics or the numbers exactly, but, you know, when you go to the Rose Bowl, and we were so fortunate to go three out of four years, uh, the, the first thing you do is you land on the 26th, you put your stuff in the hotel room, and you go to Disneyland. But then the next night, you go to Lowry's, which is this great uh-huh. steakhouse, and you have a prime rib eating contest. And Joshua Garnett almost couldn't practice the next day. I don't know if there's such a thing. We all know about meat sweats, but I don't know if there's meat poisoning. But I think he was on the cusp. I mean, he he ate so many. I don't know if it's 20 pieces of prime rib, but it was some ungodly number. And uh, certainly he helped us win the contest that year. Oh, my God. My, my cholesterol raised just thinking about, just thinking about. Uh, you know, something I always enjoy talking to coaches about is, 
coaching identity. And how long do you think you were in coaching before you really, like, had a firm grasp of who you were as a football coach? You know, I think it's ever-evolving. But I think what I, I had the opportunity to do is, you know, be on the defensive side of the ball at Florida State during those times. And, and you talk about, like, starting your career on third base to some degree. You know, at Florida State in the late 90s, Gosh, we lost one game in 1997 and beat Ohio State in the Sugar Bowl. The next year, we end up playing Tennessee for the national title game. Then we go to, then I go to Alabama and we win the SEC. We beat Break Florida's home winning streak in the swamp. It was like 56 games. We beat them, beat the heck out of them in the SEC championship game, and then we go play Tom Brady in the Orange Bowl. So I think there was some element of me that was like, oh yeah, it's gonna go Sugar Bowl, Fiesta Bowl, Orange Bowl, and that's just kind of how this coaching thing goes. Um, so anyway, I was so blessed by those defensive coaches at Florida State. And then my last year at Alabama, when Dennis Franchoni came in, he's like, hey, you know, I think Coach Bowden had called him, like, hey, I've got a job for you, but you can't stay on defense. you got to move to offense. And that was uh, unbelievable how much that affected my career. And what I mean by that is, you know, being on the defensive side of the ball for, I guess, four years plus my time coaching in high school, uh, five years, and then – you know, getting to go back to kind of my roots of playing tight end in college and, and being part of the offensive line and learning from a guy that people in this state know well in Jim Bob Helduzer and, and seeing how he pushed guys, seeing how he understood that everybody had to be coached a little bit differently, but you still had to coach them hard. You had to hold them accountable, and you had to be a great teacher. Um, I think that was that was really formative as I went to Catawba and Delta State and then I get to the New York Jets and Brian Schottenheimer, you know, growing up under Marty uh, and getting to coach under him and just some of the wisdom that, that Brian had. Even though Brian was not much older than me, his experiences in this game were just unbelievable. And so I think, like, listening to him talk about teach, reach, and demand, teach in such a way that you reach everybody in your room and then go on the field and demand it's done the right way, our way, period. I think that was awesome. But I, I guess I've always been really passionate about this game. So whether it's talking about infectious enthusiasm or then having Rex Ryan come into the building and say, hey, we're going to pound the rock, control the clock, and play great defense. And that's how we're going to win this championship. And then I started looking back, and, and at every level of ball, I've won championships through that. You know, we had a great staff at Catawba College. Our D-line coach was Jimmy Tomsula, who ended up becoming the head coach of the 49ers. So that's who I got to go against every day there. At Delta State, the defensive coordinator was Ron Roberts, who's had such a great career already, and he's at Baylor now as the defensive coordinator. Him and Dave Aranda are really tight. So no matter who it's been, I think I'm always formulating who I am, but I think like some consistent things are understanding that it's always about the players. Like if it's not for the players, if we don't stop every meeting for the players, we – we don't have a job without them. So everything's got to be player-based. I think infectious enthusiasm is just who I am. Like, you know, if you're useful, you're useful. I, I think people say that all the time now, but I believe it so much. Like, come to practice, understand how lucky we are. And then lastly, however you coin the phrase, whether it's pound the rock, control the clock, and play great defense, which doesn't mean we're not going to throw the ball over your head, right? We're certainly going to do that too. But whether it's that or intellectual brutality, which – you know, we coined in 2013 when I took over as the OC at Stanford, and then we brought to Rice. Like, that's just when you're at a school like this where the guys are so intelligent, you've got to use every part of their skill set. And part of it is their freaking mind. So we're going to go to 
line of scrimmage with multiple plays and multiple answers. We're going to let them get us to the right play, and then we're going to understand that when the ball turns over, we want to unleash holy hell on the guy across from us. And that's, that's intellectual brutality. So, once again, those things are kind of informed, but my core beliefs of how you need to work and how you need to prepare for every meeting. You know, Bill Walsh said you should spend twice as much time preparing for a meeting or a practice as you actually get to do running it. So if you're in an hour meeting, you should spend two hours preparing that meeting. And that's something I tell my staff all the time. Like, it is all about the guys. The time we get with them is so precious, so we've got to make sure we're preparing the right way. But all those things, uh, I guess, keep getting formed. And I, I think even to when I first took this job, and Matt Rule, who I know, knew of, and we were in New York at the same time. He was with the Giants. I was with the Jets. But we didn't know each other, and he called me out of the blue and, and gave me all kinds of unbelievable advice uh, about the state, about the first year, about what was important, about things you had to make sure you were hitting to make the right decisions. So, uh, once again, I just go back. I'm so blessed by the people that have, have come into my life in terms of this game, whether it's working for them or being around them. And uh, always learning. That's something I believe in strong. So I guess I'm always evolving. But the core philosophies really started early, and many of them were from uh, the defensive staff at Florida State, Dennis Franchoni, and, and Jim Bob Hilducer. The electoral uh, brutality hashtag is my favorite hashtag in college football. Like that's just a, like a, a great phrase. And I, uh, that leads me to my, my last question. You know, as coaching at, you know, at Stanford and now Rice, are there and you're a really smart guy, but are there times where you're just like intimidated and intellectually by a couple of your players? Like, who's the smartest player you've ever coached? There are so many. Uh, there's one that that I go back to because of his photographic memory. It's a young man named Connor McFadden, and ESPN actually did a game day special on him because you know I, I'd have eyes in the box, uh, but he'd stand beside me on the sideline, and anything I said about a play he could draw up. He wouldn't even need to hear what the play was. He knew the actual sequence of the drive. He knew every defensive front. He saw things so incredibly well. And so he was a little bit of a savant, and now he's killing it in oil and gas. He was here in Houston, ironically, and now he's overseas and, and just doing such a great job. But there are multiple guys that I've coached that were perfect SAT or ACT scores. And uh, I made a statement one time at Stanford, and Josh is still true today. Like, I'm the dumbest one in the room, and I love it. Like, I love learning from these guys. I love hearing them talk about taking the, the guidance and the, and the insults that we give them. But I love hearing what they see in their stance, what, they, what they're thinking, what their thought process is. I love talking to our backs about seeing what they see uh, and what they see in a given play. Like, and I remember Tyler Gaffney was one of our great running backs at Stanford. He was actually right before Christian. And he would tell me about the explosions he felt and heard on on his periphery that would allow him to allow his focus to stay where it needed. He could hear the back blocks, and he could keep his eyes in the A-gap on power, and he could go A-A-A, B-B-B, C-C-C like you have to because he knew what was going on on the backside. He'd run it so much. And that was just – that was enlightening for me. Yeah, that's that's insane. I wouldn't even know how to talk to someone. Just some of those guys, uh, the the identic memory things always kind of creep me out. Yeah. All right, Coach, I really appreciate the time, sir. Uh, good luck for the rest of the spring, and uh, I'll see you soon for magazine stuff. Thanks so much. Go out. Thanks again to Rice Head Coach Mike Bloomgren for sitting down with Craven for this continued interview series. Craven, what was something that 
uh, surprised you or maybe you didn't know about Mike Bloomgren because I feel like especially when you get down to group of five level, unless you are like a personality, like a Jeff trailer um, or somebody that has like the, 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 the label like Spavadol had of like youngest coach or whatever, it's hard to kind of stand out. Um, you look at like Seth Luttrell, Dana Dimmel, um, coincidentally, the other conference USA coaches, uh, Mike Bloomgren. Um, they're not really like the, the most outgoing personalities to us, right? To media, to people outside the program. What, what was, was there anything that surprised you um, about him? Yeah, he kind of cut his teeth as a defensive coach at, with Florida State. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he when he kind of when his college career was over football wise at, at Coverton, he he went back to Florida State. He's from Tallahassee, and was as a student kind of you know working at his old high school. Yeah, and it was on campus. Like he went to like Florida High School or whatever, which is on campus of Tallahassee, like of Florida State at the time. Mm-hmm. So. He would just go hang out with Bobby Bowden, you know, at the at the school and like want, you know, go to the defensive study stuff and go to practices and everything hmm. and really cut his teeth as a defensive guy because in his career, I've always known him as an offensive guy. Sure. Uh, and he line. just kind of went offensively because that's where a job took him at the time. It was, you know, like, hey, uh, we got this job opening over here, uh, but you're going to have to go back towards offense if you want to take it. And so he took it. And so, uh, yeah, I thought that was I thought that was really interesting. Um, and, and then the other thing I always found I find interesting about him, and I, I, I think I found this interesting beforehand, is you think like really smart math analytical type of mind. You think of like passing offensive guys, right? They tend to be kind of like air raid, spread it out, like those kind of dudes. You know, big homers in baseball, three point shots. And he's kind of like a old school, like run the football. He wants to be physical. You know, that Stanford Jim Harbaugh style of, of football that we, you know, kind of knew Stanford for during his time. There was an offensive line coach and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I've always kind of found that a little bit interesting about him, too, that he kind of is an old school guy, despite his, uh, you know, kind of analytical mind of the game. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. That's a good, that, God, I keep forgetting. Like, yeah, he's an offensive line guy. But yeah, that's a really good point about cutting his teeth on defense because, like, you look at his resume and it's all offensive line off, you know, assistant head coach, all that stuff. But, you know, you mentioned before he really got into it, it was just kind of like hanging around the defensive staff. So I like that actually. Um, yeah. And then he, uh, you know, his time with the jets, you know, he's yeah. one of the few guys who's, yep. you know, he really is. He's one of the only guys I know who's coached some high school, some college and some NFL. Man. Um, yeah. And so, you know, to, to go from quality control, just a, a guy, you know, I think he said in the interview is like forty thousand dollars or something like that mm-hmm. um, to go work for the, for the Jets when he got and then to rise where he did to, you know to become an offensive coordinator at Stanford like he really did you know started at Delta State mm-hmm. you know he didn't have one of those careers where you know you just started it like right at a big school like in a right. Power Five you know like he started it as a guy who was doing like three or four jobs and stuff and. Yeah. Those guys like always have like a different perspective of the game. Sonny Dykes was like that, where he kind of started, you know, from the bottom and, and kind of had to work his way up completely because he wasn't like this big time football player. And so uh, his path is an, an interesting path. And that's been the coolest part to me of this podcast series we've been doing is kind of getting these coaches to talk about a time before they were like big time head coach guy, mm-hmm. exactly. um, you know, and so that's that's been interesting. Mallory, got any questions about the Rice Owls? We do. We will start off at the quarterback position. As Craven mentioned earlier, Luke McCaffrey was the starter last year, but he is now transitioning to that wide receiver position. So 
who's going to take over at quarterback. And I think Jake Constantine is he trans or he he graduated right, so he's not there yeah. anymore. Mm-hmm. So we've got a couple of options. Wiley Green he uh, looked really good in the spring game, and then T.J. McMahon I think as well is uh, is also up for that position. Yeah, I mean my my vote is Wiley Green. I, I think when he was healthy last year and he played he, he played pretty well. I mean he doesn't have. I'm not going to wow you, right? I mean, there's right. a reason he was kind of the third guy yeah. to get his shot last year uh, in the pecking order. But I think he's really consistent. He's a younger guy. He's only he's still only a sophomore because of the mm-hmm. COVID stuff and a, and a redshirt year. So he still has some time to grow, uh, and they can kind of build that offense around him if they can agree on him. You know, with Rice, the thing, they've had to start so many quarterbacks over the last couple of years because mm-hmm. of injuries. I think they've gone into the last six seasons with a different starting quarterback in week one. And so if they can just find some continuity and some consistency at that position, that would be huge. And, you know, there's always the option of the transfer portal. If, if mm-hmm. Coach Bloomgren didn't like what he saw or, you know, thinks he needs to add another body uh, over the offseason, maybe in the summer they dip into the transfer portal and try to find a guy there as well. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, more to your point about the the so many quarterbacks is like, Giovanni Johnson took a, took snaps in 2020. He didn't get a sniff last year, right? And so he's still on the roster, but like he's probably not an option considering that they played four guys. I was going to say, year. I think they started like four quarterbacks at a, right. And so like he's obviously at least they didn't consider him ready last year. So maybe if he's improved a lot, I don't see him being the starter. But if he punches his way into the two deep, I don't know. But yeah, I'd probably go Wiley Green, T.J. McMahon right now. Um, if you had to kind of to ask me but yeah i mean other than that you have you have, you have two other red shirt freshmen uh in um i cannot pronounce shockwe shocky east trace and joshua bailey um so probably not two guys you're that comfortable mm-hmm. throwing into the fire um so yeah it, it, it one credit to luke mccaffrey for sticking around because yeah. <laughs> yeah. that was the other thing it was like he's transferred already a bunch of times but if he feels that like he can make a difference at receiver, he's a good enough athlete too. I think so. Um, credit to him for sticking around and hopefully making an impact there. Um, but also, yeah, they need to find some stability, man. That's 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 what's been a, the big hurdle for this offense is when they maybe find a little bit of a running game. You don't know who's going to be the starter the next week. So when and out. when you're a quarterback in the transfer portal and you look at that position at Rice, you're like, dang, well, I don't want to get hurt. So right, why yeah, so why yeah, would exactly, you want to yeah. go there? Yeah, you know, exactly. it's they got to find some consistency there. Yeah. And it's tough in the transfer portal with Rice because of their academic stuff. Right, uh, exactly. You know, it, it's not as easy to transfer into transfer into Rice as it is, you know, some other places. So that's always uh, that's always kind of something that holds them back as well. Yep. Next up, uh, we know the defense wasn't great last year, and now Elijah Garcia has declared for the NFL draft, probably one of their best defensive players that they had last year. Uh, how are they going to make up for his absence? Yeah, I don't know if you you really do make up completely, you know, when you lose an all-conference player like that in the middle of your defense. He definitely was the rock of that. You know, they got a couple. Of, I think their secondary is going to be pretty good. Mm-hmm. Gabe Taylor's back. Sean French is back. Um, I think there's a couple other guys. I think Jordan Dunbar also uh, back. So they're going to be good on the back end. Figuring out that rush is going to be, um, you know, the big deal. And, and they got one really good player, Akina. I'm going to butcher his last name. In Chuku. I think think is how you say it. Yes. And so, uh, you know, I do do think he'll be kind of their main guy in the middle. He played some uh, defensive tackle last year. I think they use him as a three technique and then out wide, maybe as a five, six technique as well. Um, So he'll he'll be kind of a guy to maybe try to replace Elijah Garcia. Um, But that's the, that's the side of the ball that I think Rice has to figure out the most, right? Mm -hmm. Like I feel like offensive wise, 
they're always going to struggle to have like the playmakers and really be like this big time like scoring team. Uh, but they should be pretty good defensively. Like they should be a pretty sound defensive team. There's enough uh, talent to kind of find some guys where you can be pretty good in the front seven. And they just haven't been over the last couple seasons. They're going to have to get that figured out uh, if they want to make a bowl game this year. Yeah, I think Trey Schumann's another guy who um, is a senior this year. He's, I believe, outside of Inachuku and uh, Garcia, he was the other pass-rushing defensive lineman um, on that team. And so I feel like he's going to be asked to step up quite a bit, being the, I think he's the only, at least returning, uh, upperclassman on that defensive, on the, as far as pass rush goes. Um, so he's somebody who I'll probably watch out for as well. But yeah, no, I definitely, that's, it's a huge loss, but I agree that they kind of are what they are on offense. Mm-hmm. Um, but to get away with that style, you got to really have a consistent defense. So, And lastly, the Owls went 4-8 and eight last year with two overtime losses. Can the Owls reach maybe six wins this year and be in oh. bowl contention? Yeah, I, it's just <laughs> – it's tough with them because they're going to have to they're, – they're, their non-conference schedule makes it almost impossible. Yeah. Like, I think it's a know, little bit at, easier though than last year. Their 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 non-conference last year was I think a little bit more difficult than it will be this year. I mean, they still only have one winnable game, you know, like yeah. last year it was Texas Southern that was their winnable yeah. game. This year they're at USC, they're versus Louisiana, which I guess Louisiana may, may take a step back with Billy Napier at Houston, at Florida, mm-hmm. uh, but not that big of a step back and then you know, then you're at Houston, obviously, probably going to lose that game. So you're looking at this one and three start before you even get into conference USA, USA play. You know, that means you got to win five conference games. You're going to have to have like a five and three conference record. And, and that's a really tough ask in a conference that's so even. Like, could mm-hmm. they do it? Yeah. I don't think there's a whole lot separating the middle three from like the back three of conference USA. Like, what really is the difference between UTEP, North Texas, and Rice? Mm-hmm. Like that, those are all really close games, right? Yeah. North Texas and Rice, you know, went into overtime last year, so they could do it, but they're going to have to play pretty perfect and stay healthy in conference play because uh, that non-conference schedule just does them no favors at all. Yeah, I was going to say we can play our favorite game of project the record <laughs> because, like, here I'm looking at their schedule right now, um, and this is April. Of course, we do pro- put projections in the magazine so people will see like. Craven's actual thoughts this summer, but looking at their record right now, they're going to have to, I think they're going to have to pull no less than two upsets. No less. Like mm-hmm. that's the bare minimum. Cause you got McNeese, whatever happens with Louisiana. Right. So that's probably one upset. Um, Cause right now you'd probably give the edge, even though they lost their head coach and they're replacing some people, I'd probably still give the edge to Louisiana. So let's say they get that one, right? Let's say they pull that upset, right? That's two. They're not beating Houston, not beating UAB. Probably got to upset FAU. Um, FAU is not what they were in the past. So, like, is it possible? Maybe, but probably still that's still an upset. La Tech, possible, mm-hmm. right? Charlotte. They went into uh, overtime with Charlotte last did go, year, they I did think. They overtime with Charlotte. Um, but still not winnable, mm-hmm. right? So, let's say I'm going to give them McNeese, Louisiana, FAU. I'll give them La Tech. Maybe North Texas, too. Well, I was, well I was, I'm, getting, I'm going to. Okay, 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 okay. So, I'll say they lose to Charlotte, but beat UTEP. They're at five. And then you got Western Kentucky, UTSA, North Texas. And you have to take one of that. Western Kentucky, maybe, right? They lost everybody on that offense. Mm -hmm. So who knows what they are now, including their offensive coordinator. Still not a guarantee. It's at Western Kentucky, too. And then UTSA and North Texas. Like, And again, that's me giving them. Right. That's me assuming that they, exactly. That's me saying they're going to beat La Tech. They're going to beat Louisiana, right? Take those two away. Then you probably got to take two from those last three. Mm -hmm. So like, 
yeah, it's a tough road. There are no less than two, probably three, like legitimate upsets that need to happen um, for them to really get to bowl bowl eligibility. And I think LaTeX going to take a step forward. Like I don't think LaTeX going to be as bad as they were last mm-hmm. year. Sure. Sonny Cumbie yeah. in there, and That's he's going to turn that offense around. I, I think LaTeX going to be, you know, kind of the riser in Conference USA the way UTEP did last year. Right. Yeah, no, I, I think UAB too. I mean, I mean, just going off of that topic, I, UAB had to kind of have a kind of had a down year last year, but I think they're going to be in the same position as Law Tech is going to get better. Yeah, because I think they, I think Rice did beat UAB last year. That was one of the games that they won. Um, and but this next year, I don't know if that's too certain. Yeah, yeah that was their big upset last year. Right, that right. out of conference schedule just makes it like Ish said, where you're going to have to pull two or three of those out, or you know, you're not gonna you're not going to be able to do anything. You know. You're not going to be able to get close to it. Mm-hmm. So that'll be it. Um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what uh, once Craven dives a little bit more into the into Rice uh, after this Jake Bailey stuff and all that. Well, you'll see his official thoughts in the magazine. We're in the thick of it. We're, I guess, this is Craven's busiest month because he's hitting all the camps. He's trying to get all this stuff in before really the end of the month where his his stuff's done. So uh, yeah, we're basically. It's basically football season for us, which is really weird, but you know, it is what it is. Football season in the spring. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> You're de- like, yeah. Definitely my uh definitely my busiest month outside of football season. Oh yeah. I was, yeah. I was about to ask how you holding up so far. Uh good so far. I, I uh we, yeah, we want to have a therapy session. I <laughs> I feel like during March, I was like, you know what? There's not a lot I can do f- about it. Like, right. it's just going to be one of those things that April's going to be crazy because, like, if I start writing now in March, so many things are going to change and happen, yep. and I'm just going to rewrite it, and that's going to be worse. But now April is here, mm-hmm. and I've never felt so behind <laughs> with mm-hmm. four weeks left to go. <laughs> you know, like, four weeks seems like an eternity in a writer's world, and I'm like, I don't know. I, don't, I may not have time. There may not be a magazine. I may be the reason. <laughs> That, that we Campbell's just we go just under, <laughs> you know? like I crumble the whole sixties plus years of history. My craven just crumbles it in in year one. You know that that fear is starting to creep into my mind more and more. That's fair. I think that's a that's a, a kind of a natural progression. I think of anybody who works on this for the first time. So especially somebody who you know the college part, which is a huge bear. Um, and it kind of is you know the, April becomes your month basically just to like hammer all of that out so i have one story to write and i'm still stressed about it <laughs> like if that tells you anything so about that me. by like 15 and there you yeah go, there you go, man man yeah you want a swag preview mallory <laughs> uh you want to do cover wraps craven yeah, there you go. <laughs> i'm just so basically if you know uh, you heard it <laughs> <laughs> So you heard it here. We don't get a magazine in July uh, in your in your uh, mailbox because of Mike Craven. So just let, <laughs> let that, <laughs> let that be known. Nobody will be able to reach me, though, because I'm going to panic move to Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> That'll work. That'll work. All right, man. Well, you take care. Get them safe. And you'll be uh, continuing to be on the road. Oh, what's the next? Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. What's the next hint for the next interview? It's uh, who we teased last week. We're down to El Paso right. and Texas A&M in terms of the only two coaches. We got Dana Dimmel and Jimbo Fisher left at the FBS level, and it is not Jimbo Fisher. I was about to say, which one do you Good think hint. we were able to get <laughs> to, the, to, the, to the listeners out there? Which one do you think we were able to get easier than the other? That's the one that we got. So that will be coming yeah. next week. Yeah, uh, get on a flight to El Paso tonight. So I'll be hanging out with uh, – UTEP, which is one of my favorite teams to hang out with. Yeah. Like I, I love those guys. Oh, so yeah. uh, 
That's definitely on my bucket list. I want to get over there. Oh yeah, no, they're definitely it's great city, great staff, you know, great team. Yeah, uh, that's, I'm I'm jealous of Craven getting to do that again. So, uh, yeah, we will talk to you guys next week. Craven, get home safe, buddy. Thank you guys. Y'all be good.